You carry nearly 80 gigs of data in my head. You're in the mainframe. It's eating through Greg's entire system. Access encoded. Gigabyte of RAM should do the trick. We're in. We're in. We're in. We're in. We're in. Hello and welcome to We're In, a podcast that gets inside the brightest minds in cybersecurity. I'm Bella Deschamps-Cook. And I'm Jeremiah Rowe. Today we're talking to Jim Manico, founder of Manicode Security, where he trains software developers on secure coding and security engineering. Jim does so much. He is a teacher, an author, investor, and a former OWASP global board member. And he's a guy with a lot of opinions about a lot of things, especially the OWASP Top 10, Secure Coding, and the OWASP Application Security Verification Standard, ASVS, which is one of my favorite things. We'll hear from Jim all about that and much more after a quick word from our sponsor. We're In is brought to you by Synac, the premier crowdsourced platform for on-demand security expertise. Synac delivers 24-7 pen testing, intelligence, and vulnerability management from a global network of vetted and trusted researchers. Their work is enhanced by smart technologies to accelerate your critical cybersecurity missions. Synac gives businesses the best chance of finding every vulnerability that matters. Find out more at synac.com. That's S-Y-N-A-C-K.com. Hello, Jim. Uh, it's so good to meet you. We're really excited to, to chat with you today. Uh, how are you doing today? I'm doing fantastic. It's my honor to be on your podcast. I love talking security. Um, thank you for having me here, Bella. We're also joined by Jeremiah, my co-host. And Jeremiah, how are you doing today? I'm doing good. Thanks, Bella. I am currently on vacation traveling. Jim, thank you so much for joining. Again, it's our pleasure to have you on the show. You've had such an impact in the industry, and, and we're just happy to be able to highlight that. So thanks for joining. I guess my marketing is working then. So no, it's, thank you for your <laughs> kind words. It means a lot to me. I appreciate it a lot. So um, getting started, uh, ultimately, you know, we just kind of, um, given your history and everything you've done in security so far, I'm kind of curious as to why you, why you decided to start Manicode Security and why you focused your career around the secure coding aspect. This is my, my wheelhouse, right? I've been, I'm primarily a developer. Even today, I don't think of myself as a security professional. I'm a developer. And, I, and throughout the course of being an architect and parts of my career, I had to learn about how to defend my code and how to defend my applications. I'm talking like mid-90s when it wasn't really in vogue to do so. And I was getting attacked and learning about this. So I ran into OWASP in my research and I began arguing with Jeff Williams about security, and he was he was very helpful early on. And I, as I continued the study of secure coding, I realized there's just not much out there on this topic. So I began to collect the information that I was that I was studying and starting to organize it for my own use. And I, and like you, I started a podcast on application security because as I'm collecting this research information for my own work, I'm meeting all these rock stars in application security at the time in this really small you know, unique community. So I did my own podcast to record the beginning of this industry and all the, the brainiacs who were, uh, who were teaching me around about secure software. I met Eric Sheridan, Dave Wickers, um, yeah. Michael Bursky, wow. and all these originals, some of the, uh, Andrew Vanderstock and a lot of the, the early folks at OWASP. And so I eventually collected this information and wrote a book. I wrote a book for Oracle on how to build a web application securely in the Java language. And I was kind of bit from there. I just say like, writing a book was hard. It was not a profitable endeavor at all. It was a intellectual endeavor and a mental and a and a, and a you know a marketing piece, but also a way to uh, organize my thoughts 
And writing that book is really what prepped me to be a, a teacher. And so, since, and I've been teaching for about a, about a decade now. Manicode's been around for about six years. And it, it's, you know, it's, it's not just a business. It's my joy. It's, I love teaching. You know, my grandfather and father are both. I feel that for sure. It's just yeah. something I love doing. So that's the kind of progression from developer to getting attacked, to being introduced to OWASP, to writing a book, to starting a training company. I feel very fortunate and I love what I do. And that book was called Ironclad Java. Is that, is that yeah. right? Yeah, it's Ironclad yeah. Java, Building Secure Java Web Applications. So I know Manicode is kind of focused around teaching secure coding. Uh, can you tell us exactly what you mean by that phrase, secure coding? And specifically, like, what is the difference between learning secure coding practices and just learning to code generally? Like, for example, when I'm learning to code, I might be working with the SQL, SQL data access meta language, right? The SQL, standard query language. And if I'm adding variables to my developer built queries with a raw string building, guess what? My functionality works and the application works and I, I can accomplish my business goals. But one of the, 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 one of the non-functional characteristics of that way of building a query is that it leads to SQL injection. Secure coding is when you're just not satisfied just to build functionality that works, that you want to use something called a parameterized query and other techniques to access that database in a secure fashion. For example, another, another example of secure coding is I'm using JSON web tokens, and maybe I'm doing a really bad job of verifying that signature, but my authentication system works. And then I find a flaw, like maybe I'm using an old library and I'm using, uh, I, I, and the attacker can, do a weird trick. They can set the uh, signature type to none to bypass my signature check on your JSON web token. That's the insecurity. Doing it securely means I'm aware of this problem. I keep my library up to date and I have my server verify a limited number of valid signatures for that kind of JSON token mechanism. That's a little bit of extra effort. And it's not, it's not that much effort, but it does require specialized knowledge. And Bella, it's a lot of minutiae. And this, I don't think people talk about this a lot, but doing defensive secure coding is like hundreds of requirements that a developer, developer needs to get right. Some, some are functions and some are non, non-functional characteristics of software. So this body of knowledge is brutally complex. There's a lot going on. That's why something like the ASVS, that's one of the OWASP documentation projects, the Application Security Verification Standard, it's the combined wisdom of over 100 professionals that come together to build a requirement list as a standard that the whole world can benefit from, right? I'm an expert in this area, supposedly, right? But as I work on the standard, <laughs> I, learn, I learn more than I give. And I, I learn a lot just by keeping a close eye on the standard. Because Again, it's the collective wisdom of security requirements for many. And this is the minutia of secure coding, you know, written down in GitHub for us for us all to, to benefit from. 
So I'm a, I'm a huge believer in contributing into the community, not just utilizing the resources that are there, but also giving back. And, and to that point, I'm kind of curious, you know, how did you transition from just sort of chatting with folks around secure coding and, and, and having those, those community conversations to becoming a really, uh, really big contributor in something like, you know, OWASP or uh, uh, what, what OWASP is doing with the ASVS? You know, that's an interesting question. I mean, it's just my nature. It's like, you know, I don't I don't have kids. I have free time. I run my own business. I don't have like the standard nine to five job. I have a lot of freedom in my life to do what I want to do. And, and it's very selfish of me to do this because the more that I give to OWASP, the more I do free talks, the more when some random person says, can you please mentor me? I need help. The more I do that, what's the side effect of that kind of behavior? It's, you know, I, I, I get recognition, I get kudos, I get the guy who I helped 10 years ago, some like low level engineer who like barely talked security and I gave him my time. Guess what he's now, guess what he's doing now, eight years later. Oh, he's a developer manager hiring me at no small expense to do like professional inst- instruction with him. So being a decent human being, being a community supporter, uh, trying to help people out, give free talks, it, it's just, a, it's a, it's, it's. You can call it being a decent person, but it's also a good life and business strategy. I don't do sales. I don't do mar- I do sales. I'm sorry. I don't do marketing. <laughs> I just try to like give to the community. And as a result of yeah. that, people want to hire me to do training. And so it's, it's my way of life. And, it's, and, I, and I think it's an important one. And I, I'm not perfect. I make mistakes. But I, I feel the more, the more I give out to the community, the more I benefit from it and the more my business benefits from it and the more I emotionally benefit from it. Like, you know, I, what do I get from OWASP? People saying thank you to me a lot or grateful for my effort. And that, that warms yeah. my heart. So this is my business and life strategy to, to give as much as I can to the community. It's something I've done for a long time and I'm very selfish as I do it. I don't know if you could describe that as selfish at all, but <laughs> completely fair. Understood. <laughs> um, so OWASP Top 10 is like widely used in the industry. Uh, I've referenced it all the time in, in my career. Uh, how does the Top 10 and other OWASP projects as well, including ASVS that you've mentioned, and I know there are plenty of others, um, how do these projects help organizations learn about security and kind of focus in on their own security posture? Certainly. Uh, you know, uh, like, wh- why Why do we get a lawyer? Wh- why do we hire a lawyer? I mean, the law is all written down. We just, why not just go read the law and be your own lawyer? Because the interpretation of the law is super complicated. And I, and I kind of see, like, security in that vein as well, right? And so I, I'm, I'm not sure... Get, get, Give me your question one more time. I want to make sure I'm going down the right <laughs> the right path. I, I, I'm going sure. somewhere, but give me your question one more time, Bella. No, you're good. I, I think what I want to talk about with you is how OWASP... Uh, I mentioned top 10 because I think it's referenced and used a lot, but really every single OWASP project. How do how do these projects help organizations learn about security and focus, like, focus on improving their own security posture? And I want to strongly differentiate because the, the purpose of the OWASP Top 10 and the purpose of the Application Security Verification Standard, ASVS, are very different. So yeah. what I was trying to make is that, now I, I get it, I get it now, is that, look, we go hire a lawyer because we have massive complexity. And when you're a developer who hasn't really addressed security in your career much, 
suddenly learning about security is like interpreting the law. Is There's just so many little details you have to get right, and it's esoteric knowledge. Less so these days, but it's esoteric knowledge. So what does OWASP Top 10 do? OWASP Top 10 is really for someone who is new at web security and API security. There's also the M, really the ASVS is really the WASVS, web application verification. There's also the mobile and IoT and, and IoT and other ASVSs. But back to the OS top 10, it's for initial awareness. If you're a developer or a security professional and you want to learn about web security, this is a good document to start your, your research of web security on. But the thing is, you should read the OWASP top 10 once and then put it away because honestly, you shouldn't be basing a security program or anything on the OWASP top 10. The OWASP top 10 is meant for one purpose only, awareness. This is not just my opinion. This is actually codified in the introductory of the OWASP top 10 that explains, please don't use it as a standard because it's just a top 10 list. But it is a de facto standard because of how many. It's an easy thing to attach to. Oh, my product supports the OWASP top 10. <laughs> Who cares? I mean, like, it's nice. I mean, I, I don't want to be that that much a curmudgeon, but <laughs> to some degree, it's an incomplete message. What you Because I'd rather you start addressing, hey, I, I, my testing tool handles ASVS level one requirements according to the 4.03 standard. Oh, that's a bit more comprehensive. So the OWASP top yeah. 10, and I love it. I, I'm out there giving OWASP top 10 talks like three times a day. I went to LinkedIn and said, hey, anybody want a free <laughs> OWASP top 10 talk? I got my new talk. I'm like, okay, I'm booked now. Whoa. So that, I'm, I love the OWASP top 10 for breeding awareness, for giving conference talks. It's one of my training modules. Yeah. Then stop, put it down <laughs> and pick up the ASVS, the OWASP Application Security Verification Standard, a comprehensive almost 300 requirement standard to help you as a web developer or a tester evaluate web security of web software. And that, now we can base a program off the ASVS standard. We can fork it for our own standard. And it's, I, I love the team that works on it because it's like Daniel Cuthbert, Andrew Vanderstock's been a big part of it for a while. We have um, Elar Lang, who's a new leader of the project, uh, Joshua Grossman. We have uh, Svorn and several others who participate who are just amazing volunteers. And here's how I see the group. We are the biggest group of pedantic bastards I've ever worked with. Oh my, we will like fight <laughs> to the death oh on like God. three words in a requirement. <laughs> And get really I don't think pissed I've off ever at each other because more. they want those. How oh, dare you are! You're repeating the word "cookie" twice in that sentence, and it doesn't make sense. And I love it because we all forgive each other. And we move on, but we've. <laughs> and this like, we need does it. it change the context of this thing? Or <laughs> we we need that level of meticulous eyes on the yeah. standard, though. And I want to applaud. The, here's the real driver right now. I want to give him credit for what he's been doing. The person who's really been driving the most meticulous work of the standard and pushing us towards being a much more respectable standard is a, gentle, a gentleman from Estonia named uh, Ilar Lang. And he, his work was so great. He was pestering me so much. I'm like, I am so sick of your constant pestering and demanding me to do more work. Guess what? You're a project leader now. Boom. And he's, I'm, I'm being a little joking here, but he's been a great project leader and he's, he, he has that like real meticulous eye on each requirement and the structure of our document and everything that he's one of the reasons we just released 4.03, which really was a really great job. Thank you, Ilar. 
And thank you, Joshua and Daniel and Andrew and everyone else who's volunteered and their time to make this standard uh, decent. So I've, I've got a question around this. So, so looking at OWASP top 10 more as treating sort of symptoms instead of addressing sort of underlying root cause, which is what I think of when I think of ASBS, right? So building that foundation and treating a root cause of insecure coding practices to both educate and to inform uh, those developers. I'm kind of curious, right? Because there's there's been a new inclusion in just the to- o- OWASP top 10 that includes insecure design. Sure. And so as as a developer, right, I reference the OWASP top 10 and I look at these things so that I can sort of be informed as I'm coding things following the ASVS. But there's that interesting addition to include insecure design. Yeah. So 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 when when we look at that, how does that tie back into the ASVS? And from a testing perspective, just just for those testers out there, right? How do they how do they begin to test for insecure design? Do they do they reference back to the ASVS? How does that tie together? Let's take a step back first. Let's look at how the OWASP top 10 has changed in 2021. If you look at the 2017 category for for data loss, we called it like uh, 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 I forgot what I, let, me, let me go look this up real quick. Let's go, we gotta go check this out. So I'm gonna open up my slide deck here. I'm I'm so ready to talk about this. So I want to look at how the cryptographic category changed from 2017 to 2021. So I'm I'm scrolling. I got my slides up. That's my whole world. I'm ashamed to say I'm a PowerPoint expert. So cryptographic failures is the current category this year. That's the root cause. Back in 2017, we caused it. We called it sensitive data exposure. That's a broad symptom. But the root cause is you messed up crypto, right? Using a bad library or the wrong algorithm or you're not doing proper key management. So I like that change. Cryptographic failure is more like directed at the developer. Let's get crypto right. And now we can point in that, like get TLS right, do key management, use a secret fault, have a proper key life cycle, use the right algorithm, use a well-vetted library and more. We'll take a look <laughs> at the cryptographic storage cheat sheet to see some of those details. And so now let's look at secure design. This is a little controversial, but I like it. What we're trying to say, what, what is this What is this new requirement really trying to say? And this is the, the fourth one. Let me read this from the, from the, the document. It says, A4, um, insecure design, is a new category for 2021 with the focus on risk related to design flaws. If we genuinely wish to move left as an industry, we need to do more threat modeling secure design patterns and principles, and reference architectures. So it's not just threat modeling. I like the term reference architecture because if you're a threat modeler and you're just walking into a meeting, start talking about security, you're like in one of those dinosaur blow-up costumes. You ever see those little dinosaur blow-up costumes like this? (laughs) You're flopping around. And then like, so when you go into a threat modeling session, You want to have a plan, reference architectures that your company approved, secure design principles and standards you're trying to conform developers to. Don't flop around. Have a plan to conform the different projects to your standard architectures. And then I think secure design is really useful. But the point is, we're not just, the problems are not just individual technical vulnerabilities anymore. As we move to these really complicated N-tiered microservice-based systems, to software is now, now how we design that system is really critical up front. Go back to your traditional web app in the in the late 90s and 2000s. It was a web server and a database, and it was really straightforward architecture most of the time. Today, 
I'm in the cloud. I got the Hadoops and JWT verification and key management servers. And I got, I'm breaking things up in hundreds of microservices. I got to have revocation endpoints in my, it's it's just, there's a lot more going on. Libraries. Yeah. I'm using tons of third party libraries because of the massive complexity modern software sometimes is a part of. Planning that dive at the architectural level, I think, is really important. That's what insecure design is all about. It's acknowledging that problems are more than just low-level technical vulnerabilities. And if you don't think about your design ahead of time, trying to unwind an insecure design is massively expensive. So let's do some threat modeling when we're changing our architecture. Boom. It sort of sounds like the 2021 OWASP Top 10 is very, like, in keeping with the whole trend of shift left, like those multiple changes that you mentioned really make it seem like, I know earlier you talked about how OWASP top 10 should not be used as a testing standard. Um, And I think in my experience, I see that, like I see a lot of customers who say, hey, can you test for OWASP top 10? Um, And I think that these changes really help to kind of say what you've been saying, which is like, this should not be a testing standard. You have to do more, you know, like this is about, kind of beyond that, if that makes sense. The way I address this as an educator, as a, as a tester, when somebody approaches you for the OWASP top 10, there's nothing wrong with that. That means what they're really saying is, I need help with web security issues. They got trans, and then no, you know what? I can definitely help you with that OWASP top 10 testing. And here's, and here's the category, here's all the things we're gonna be searching for if you're a good testing company. You have a clear list of like what you're going after not just here's here's what you don't tell customers yeah just trust us we're gonna flop around and do some testing we'll find some stuff no no you usually want to let customers know what you're up to transparency helps and i just i don't and people ask me i need OWASP top 10 training great so i have my like my content broken down into individual learning modules i'm like yeah i can do that and i give them a list OWASP top 10 is one of those items and i show them all the (laughs) 40 other modules I offer. And they're, and it's, it's never a problem. As long as you right. convert the OWASP top 10 request from a customer into just a general web security ask, I've never had a problem with that conversation. And in fact, it it gives, it's actually a good thing because when they ask the question, I know exactly, when they ask the question, I know where they're at and what they're asking for instantly. And I can give, I can help them out. I know I can lend service to them. So I want to talk a little bit more about OWASP ASVS. Um, So I'm a huge fan of ASVS. I used it in my previous role as a pen tester. Uh, I talk about it all the time now. My coworkers probably get really sick of hearing about ASVS from me. Um, (laughs) But one of the things that I talk about a lot with it, which you mentioned already, uh, we, we mentioned already, was that it's a different approach to security than a lot of other, um, you know, references out there. And, and then a lot, is different than a lot of bug bounty and pen testing can be. It's that kind of uh, proactive looking for security controls instead of finding exploitable vulnerabilities kind of mindset. Um, so why is this approach to security important? You know, uh, ASVS is supposedly a set of requirements that both a tester and a, a developer can benefit from. And so there, let me let me go. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, let me open up ASV. Let me open up ASVS while we're talking and give you an example of some of these requirements for the sake of our conversation. So I'm going to I'm gonna I'm gonna go do a little Google on OWASP ASVS and GitHub because all of our work is done very transparently transparently right now. 
So I'm at the main GitHub repo now, and I'm gonna click on the 5.0 directory, English, where our current work pushing towards the 5.0 standard is done. That's where you see the most recent changes. So I'm gonna look at, I'm gonna go a little deeper into validation and sanitation and encoding section. Here are some requirements. Verify that the application has defenses against HTTP parameter pollution attacks, particularly if the framework makes no distinction about the source of request parameters, get post cookies, headers, environmental variables. This is some, I, don't, I don't deal with this much in my practice, but that's the level of detail that you'll see in a requirement. And this is, and this doesn't give the exact answer. We you gotta do a little more research beyond the requirement. Well, how do I test for HTTP parameter pollution attacks? That, there's a whole body of knowledge around that. As a developer, how do I stop it? Sometimes my framework handles it. That's mostly the common answer now. This could be some other, other problems as well, uh, uh, other things I need to do at my framework level to stop this. So the requirement is not about being giving you all the answers. It's pointing to the problem as clearly as we can. Now, some requirements do get a lot deeper. How about this? Verify 513 in the 50 uh, bleeding edge branch. Verify that all input, HTML form fields, REST requests, URL parameters, HTTP headers, cookies, batch files, RSVs is validated using positive validation and allow list. So we want to verify that all input, all of it entering your software goes through some validation layer. We're not specifying what the validation is. Am I going to do a regular expression? Am I going to do numeric validation? Am I going to sanitize? Am I going to do it? Use an HTML validator or sanitizer to do my validation step. That body of knowledge is super complex, but we're pointing, hey, every input should have some kind of input validation. And we try to get deeper into that, in, into the different different sections. But it's only about just this section, input validation and similar, it's about like 20 or 30 requirements. It's not all the answers. It's not like a, it's as comprehensive as we can get without starting to branch into details that are not common to all of us building web apps. When I start talking about, there's this problem in React or Angular and you have to do this, we keep away from those requirements. We keep it so it's general, points you to the problem from both a defense and attack point of view to, to understand what a complete assessment or secure coding uh, program would start to look like. So I'm not sure if I even answered your question, but. <laughs> no, I think that, that that absolutely hit it. I think, you know, again, I said this already, huge fan of ASVS. And I think there is so much value in that type of approach. Um, and I think it's important to kind of discuss why, like where does that value come from and how that is used both by, like you said, both by testers and by developers. Um, so it's interesting to discuss that. I mean, add one more brief note to that. The way I think of it is like as a developer, I'm, I'm from the late 90s. We we used did a lot of waterfall stuff. So we really planned out our requirements before we built apps. I see less and less that in the modern era, but we were very requirement driven. I started out my career at GE, very engineering heavy firm. It was actually a you know, big company back in the 90s. And so we were engineers and we wrote out our, our requirements. So to your answer, to, my answer to your question is, this is the list of requirements that's in the language mostly for me in developer language. This is how I built, like, cause I'm sorry, I rarely see testers being like, Let's have a requirements doc to plan this pen test. You know, I I, I don't see I, I see a lot. I, I know what a pen. I'm, I got my tools. I got my. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go do some. I'm gonna do some scanning and hacking pen testers. But for developers, we're a bit more requirements driven. Here are the specific things that we need to build in this project 
for it to be complete, our list of requirements, business requirements, as well as technical requirements that that drive our work. And so this and this is in the language of developer building requirements that attackers and testers should also benefit from. And, and to your point, Bella, that we moved the, the we moved in that direction from the original version, which was mostly testers who built it. Now we're a developer pack. Yeah. We're mostly working on it now. I think so. I mentioned already. I I worked previously as a as a penetration tester, and this is ASVS was a resource that I used a lot when communicating with customers. And I think like one of the values that that I saw and continue to see is that a question that I have heard from customers when doing pen tests without this type of resource is like, okay, but what was good or okay-ish or what 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 was going on other than oh no, this is a critical vulnerability, and I think. Uh, to your point, there are, I think when developers are looking at an application and thinking like, you know, here are all the things that we have in place, and then they get a pen test result that is, here's one critical vulnerability in only one area. It's, there's so much information that isn't there. And I think using a framework that, that kind of covers everything is really helpful when you're able to communicate like, yeah, you know, we are, we're only delivering this one vulnerability, but here's, it's because here are all the other things that we looked at and didn't find issues. I think that's a really great point. It's 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 a way to establish a baseline between a customer between uh, a tester and the, the recipient of those results to understand how complete the test was. It's a great way to measure if someone is doing manual pen testing for you to, even or if they have a tool scanning you even to measure how complete of a tool that really is is to is to compare it against the ASDS for completeness. So again, it's got multiple uses for for and, and I, I was even told that like there's the the OWASP testing guide, which is amazing resource. I know some testers who don't use that and use the ASVS instead because it's 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 it's, it's not as detailed per requirement as the testing guide. But it's more detailed in the completeness and the number of requirements to give testers an idea of, of things they should look for and to give customers an understanding of what the testers actually look for. And a good tester will not only point out what was wrong, but will point out the good things they run into. Hey, I tested for deserialization like crazy, didn't find any. I tested for this, didn't find any. And that's way more of a mature pen test report out than if you're just showing them a few crits. I think additionally to something, and again, this is me as a user and lover of ASVS, uh, something that I've noticed is that like ASVS offers the language to say, you know, here's an issue that we found and here's the way that it should be. Um, so it's not the, the, the requirements aren't don't have this vulnerability. <laughs> They're more like have this protection in place to prevent against this vulnerability. And so something that I've noticed in my time around pen testing is that when you're delivering a vulnerability report and all you say is, oh no, you have this issue, uh, it's really hard for a developer to like do something with that uh, unless they're super well-versed in security as well because like that's not, like developers aren't coding in issues intentionally. They're trying to code things that work and that are secure. And so with ASVS, having those like, here's how it should be, uh, that language is so useful in bridging that gap that we've been talking about. Because as a tester, you can say, hey, developer, like, here's what you should do. 
I'm, I'm with you. Like, look at the bleeding edge requirement 534. Verify that data selection or database queries use parameterized queries, the main defense stop SQL injection. I did not help you as a tester find SQL injection. I, I, told, I mentioned that you should be testing for this and look for this. And this is a white box test. This is actually looking in code to see how the coding construct was done. That's not a pen test requirement. That is a, yeah. that is a code review requirement to look for. So that shows developers how to really check to make sure the developer built that control correctly and it directly informs the developer what the control is. This is another reason why I feel like ASVS has migrated more into a developer-centric standard, right? Because 534 is not a pen test requirement. That's a code review or a developer requirement. And I think it's useful. I think it's the right way to do, to do thorough testing. I like to think of sort of pen tests as, as an obvious result as to how something's been put together, right? And so if you've put something together and, and maybe maybe you weren't aware of something like the ASVS or maybe you weren't aware of uh, certain processes that you need to fall, uh, follow like, like parameterization or, or, or filtering or something like that, right? Then, then a, a pen test or, or something along those lines are d- directly going to call out those aspects in which you fail to implement. And then you can reference back to something like the ASVS to incorporate a thought pattern while developing that, that process flow. Um, and, and, and so to that, there's, I, I understand there's, there's different levels with, with ASVS in the framework that's, that's around there. Can, can you uh, talk a little bit more as to why those different levels are implemented? Sure. Right now there's level one, two, and three. And level one is basically the way it stands today. This is what every app should have for level one. And these are things that are very easily testable via automation. Level two, we have this, this apps with more sensitive data, a bit more critical. And, you know, level two are is a lot less can be tested with automation. Level three is for like critical infrastructure, require is going to require more manual testing. And I dislike these categories. This is one of my, my pet peeves. I'm trying to migrate ASVS away from just being a testing standard for levels and do what all other standards do, make them risk levels based on yeah. the, based on, uh, like, I, I want to map this more towards what NIST Special Publication 863.3 is doing. That's the digital media standard for U.S. government, digital identity standard framework for U.S. government. And their AAL level one is for public data only. And AAL level two is for sensitive data and more, more serious risk. And AAL level three is like FIDO and smart card for more infrastructure level security. These are risk levels. And the, the fact that we made it testing level, again, this started as a test pure test testing standard. I strongly disagree with, with these three levels mapping to different testing techniques because good pen testers use some scanning tools and I got to interpret scanning results with the pen tester and what's automated and what's not is really a muddy topic. I don't know any pen tester who only does manual testing. They're all being aided by a wide yeah. assortment of automated tools to get your job done better and faster and more thorough. So, so let, let, I, and we're in the middle of this discussion right now. In fact, if you go to the issue tracker, by the way, Bella, anyone who really loves ASVS, you know what they do? They contribute. I'm luring you in <laughs> to submit issues. You see anything wrong? I want your feedback. <laughs> but if, if you go take a look at, let me do a quick search, risk 
risk-based. Let me see if I could, that's my, that, that, that's my big cry now. Let's make these levels risk-based instead of testing-based. If you look in our issue tracker, uh, issue 1127, you're going to see Elar and myself and some others debating uh, whether or not we should be a testing level, which I don't agree with, or risk level. With more in line with with NIST standards, and and we're and we're debating that right now. Join the debate again. This is issue one one two seven at the AS GitHub repo. Jump in and give me your perspective. We want community feedback here. I think it's funny that that we are talking about this because one of the biggest questions that I've gotten from from customers when I've talked about ASVS is like if I say okay, based on what you know the the what type of business you do, the things I'm going to test, we should probably test with, or like we're going to use ASVS level two. Uh, and so many times I've gotten customers say like, well, isn't level three the best? I want to be the most secure. Can oh, I use that oh, one? Oh, Bella, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to help you out here, Bella. Bella, Bella, work with me here. Hey, Bella, I think we should do a level two, uh, level two ASVS test. What do you think of that, Bella? Like, give me that. I want level three. It's the best. I want to be the oh, most I secure. agree. Level three is the best, Bella. <laughs> absolutely, we should do level three. And that will be an extra $35,000, please, for that assessment. Yep. And like, check box. <laughs> AA level one, 10 grand. AA level two, 25. AA level three. We're gonna, oh, you know what? I agree with you. You know what, customer? You are right. You're brilliant. You've read the standard right. You know what to do. I'll take your extra thirty-five thousand in cash or gold oh, bullion. No. Or, Being proactive, you, know, it is. you got it. <laughs> and also, Bill, I'm joking around, but that's a fair answer. If you want an AA yeah. level three assessment, you got to pay, you, or, or someone's really nice giving you like weeks of free service. But AA level three, you got to pay, and there's nothing wrong with that. Security assessments expensive, and there's and we're like lawyers, we're specialists, and you need us right now. So AA level three is not cheap, and that's okay. <laughs> yeah. So so shifting a little bit from ASVS, but still staying on the development topic, right? So you've described yourself as, as sort of the self-professed like developer, both in nature and heart, and you originated from the developer space. I'm kind of curious, um, for those individuals coming up into the development space, what what is sort of that that thing that you would recommend to them that for those individuals just getting started, right? What would you recommend to those individuals? At what part? At what part of their career? It's like people who just are just getting started, entering, just getting started just with entering. an IT career. Yes. Yep. Look, every time I say this, I upset people I care about. So I want. So I just want you to know when I state this opinion, I'm not trying to offend anyone. It's just my opinion to have a good career. The that comment, the controversial comment is, learn how to f and code. And you don't have to be an expert at it. You don't have to be a, a software engineer. But if you're an IT professional and you don't even understand the basis of coding, it's going to limit your capability. Because the best pen testers I know, hey, they write scripts. They automate some of their work. And you don't have to be like an Uber, uh, like super coder who's coding 60 hours a, you know, a week or whatever or more. But have some basic understanding of what the discipline of software engineering is. Do some of it yourself and go take one. There's like a million online free classes to learn the basics about JavaScript. It would take you, even if you're a non-coder, an hour to watch one of those tutorials and write some basic JavaScript that runs in the browser. And guess what? Now you're a little bit of a coder. So when I say this, people who are in management or people who do GRC take great offense. But I And I don't say this to offend anyone. I'm just saying that when you have a base knowledge of doing some coding, it's going to benefit 
every other type of IT discipline, and I encourage you to do it. Nobody wants to hear this, Jeremiah. They, they get mad. So when I actually align GRC, with that. One of my good friends, Ben and GRC, blocked me when I said this on Twitter, and I'm still, I'm still hurt because he was because he's a GRC guy who did not get a job he wanted because he didn't know how to code. And I wasn't saying it to hurt his feelings. It's just I just a lot of people who don't code take I can I can get a hundred people throwing smack at me because I say this on Twitter. Hey, start your career, learn to code. Here's a little tutorial. It'll benefit your career. It, it, it's controversial for some reason, but I stand. I by think. It. I think if you can code today, it's a little bit like being a wizard, right? And so we'll tie this back to something. Um, if you can code, you can you can almost create anything that you can think of. In addition, it's going to benefit anything that you do going forward because you can both automate, you can streamline, you can alter the effectiveness. There's so many things you can do from a coding perspective. So I align very much with that statement personally. Yeah, that's the first thing I would do in my career. Learn a little. And here's the second thing I'll recommend, right? Here's number two. L understand how AWS works. Understand some of the basics of what it means to use a cloud service to deploy, to deploy software. Even a little bit. Well, the, well, even just like for me, I spent like an hour messing with some of the AWS consoles and I'm like, boom. It opened my mind up so <laughs> much to what capabilities are there. So I can talk about it more. It took me an hour of looking at their admin screens to have my brain explode. So start to understand cloud deployment of software. That's the future of the world. And understand a little bit about coding. And it's going to help your career in really significant ways. So continuing with advice, but I want to hit kind of a, a different crowd here. Do you have any advice for organizations that are uh, like beginning to implement a DevSecOps program? Oh, so that's, oh my, wow. You see, you just like, threw a, that's not a softball. That's a loaded question. You just threw at me. How do you start DevSecOps, right? I'll give you some, the thing is, I don't like talking about DevSecOps because it's usually like a lot of buzzwords and it's very like non-scientific. I like talking about digital signature types for, for JW validation. That's hard science. So DevOps, yeah. all right, I'll do it. I'll do it. It's about, it, DevOps is all about automation. Anyone tells you differently, they're just wrong. It's all about uh, maturing your automated capabilities. And yes, there's a culture change. Where's my violin? Oh, DevOps culture change. Yeah, whatever. Automation, CICD is what DevOps is all about. And in the world of security, it's about automating your, your security testing program. So here's my advice. My advice is get, a, get an automated pipeline going that does one thing for testing, just to start with, run static analysis against your code base as a blocker. I'm going to recommend a tool that I'm affiliated with. So I'm a little biased. I'm going to recommend a tool called SEMGREP from Return to Corp because it's free. And, it, and I, can, I, I ran a 5 million line code base in like 50 seconds. Boom. Now I can integrate in a GitHub, automate a pipeline easy. So that's one, just one thing to get started. Wire in static analysis that runs fast and use it as a blocker before you allow a check-in to come in. There's one achievable, simple security goal from a DevOps pipeline perspective. Here's the second thing I would do. Why get, get Dependabot up and running to give you PRs but when your third-party libraries are out of date. There's another thing. And those two things alone, if you can mature your capability at running static analysis and running software composition analysis, third-party li library scanning, as a blocker for every check-in, whoa, 
Now you're starting to do, I don't care about DevOps, DevSecOps, right? The security testing part of DevOps, that's a good place to get started, I would dare say. I wouldn't start with dynamic scanning in the DevOps world. It takes too long to run a dynamic scan. I wouldn't use a traditional static analysis engine in a DevOps workflow. They take hours to run, and devs don't want to wait hours to finish a check-in. So use one of the newer, lean, mean, fast static analysis engines to scan your code for security and check your third-party libraries for, for out-of-date security issues as your first main tasks to automate security in a DevOps pipeline. Boom. There you go. I like this advice because I think like we're having a conversation. A lot of times, I hear this a lot at least, uh, security is is like an annoyance and a blocker and it gets in the way of things. It slows processes down. And I think sometimes there is, you know... I, I'll say I've experienced it. There's some animosity from developers when working with security oh, yeah. professionals because we get in the way. Um, and I think it's really cool to have this conversation where, you know, we've been talking about a standard that is like kind of designed for developers to use. You're giving advice that is, you know, you're yeah. addressing that knowledge of like slowing things down is not fun. Um, and I, I just think it's really cool to be be able to have this conversation while, you know, being conscious of the things that people don't like about security. <laughs> Absolutely. We, we're, one of the power of DevOps is to get security professionals out of the way. It takes a huge amount of automation and scripting work and similar to get there. <clears throat> but the point of DevOps is, is I now, I'm going to check in code and I want that code, and that, that piece of code is, is I want to go to production. So we're going to run through a bunch of static analysis testing, pass. I'm going to look for third-party library scanning, pass. I'm now going to do the build and get ready to deploy. I do pre-build testing and those tests all pass. So guess what? You're live. And who stopped me? No one. Uh, how about this? Oh, can we talk about that requirement first? No, you're out of the way. Or can we do a threat model first? You're out. Or I need to review those results. You're out. Any people who get in the way of a live release, that's what DevOps is about. And it takes mammoth automation, security testing, and, and disciplined process to be able to get that reward for all of your work in building a proper testing pipeline. So to those very points right there, how do you see the overall shift left, you know, mentality impacting the industry as a whole? Um, is it shaking it up a bit or, or what are you, what are you personally seeing? It, it depends on, it depends on the, the kind of company and the pressure they have to write secure software. But one, one of my, comp, one of my customers doing training with me for seven years now, and they're in a medical field and they're doing well and they, they really care about not hurting people. So they're, one, of their, one of the risks they worry about is like public safety and similar. And so every, I got to watch what I say with them because they take all my advice and, and they, they, they take my advice seriously is what I'm trying to say. And I watched them like seven years ago, SQL injection was an issue. I look at them today and they're running a pretty badass scanning uh, uh, collection of tools and testers at their stuff and it's bouncing. It's not because I'm not because I'm you know I'm a teacher, it's because they took they they did the work for years and developer security was never questioned for them. They're in the world of public safety and medical and they just do it. And they little by little matured their capabilities over seven years and now they're security rock stars. Absolutely rock stars because of their subtle shift left over many years as a company. Thank you so much for putting up with all of our questions so far. Uh, is there anything else that we haven't covered that you'd like to share today? 
again, I, I think it's a good life and business choice to volunteer your time to help the OWASP Foundation do better, help everyone do better at web security. And Bella, I'll be looking <laughs> for your, I'll be looking for your issues or PRs or any feedback you have. If you're, if you love it, <laughs> if you love ASVS as much as you do, then you will, you will share your amazing knowledge with us and help us at the project. So I'm, I'm waiting. Now that you. I know, now that I know that y'all are super pedantic, I will feel right at home there. That's you'll, awesome. you'll see me, you'll see me on GitHub for sure. That's awesome. And lastly, what's one thing people wouldn't know by, about you by looking at your LinkedIn profile? Here's an honest truth, Jeremiah. Uh, and it's, it's not, it's not something, it's just the way I'm built. I'm, I'm pretty transparent, open book. I don't, I don't, I don't carry a lot of secrets. I don't have a secret vault. I have a big mouth. And a lot of like open nature. And I, even when I don't want to, I usually just say it like it is. So I don't, I don't, I don't, I'm not built with a lot of, I don't have a secrets vault. I, I have a big mouth. So th- there, there's some people, oh, everyone knows about me who knows me because <laughs> I'm a big talker and I'll say anything and I'm an open book. All right. That's it. That's my story. Jared. That's awesome. <laughs> thank you. Again, like Bella said, thank you so much for joining the show. I know I've certainly enjoyed speaking with you today. It's been a pleasure. Jeremiah and Bella, have a great day. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so much, Jim. Thanks, Jim. It was really great. Does your penetration testing meet compliance requirements? Does it adhere to the most rigorous security standards on the market today? Now you can find Synac on the FedRAMP marketplace for all of your agency's security testing needs. Synac recently received moderate in-process status from FedRAMP meaning that even more U.S. departments, agencies, and contractors can utilize Synac's global network of trusted and vetted security researchers for on-demand, around-the-clock pen testing. Learn more at Synac.com. That's S-Y-N-A-C-K.com. If you liked today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and subscribe wherever you're listening to this. It'll really help us get noticed on your favorite podcast platforms. Also, you can share this episode with your friends and make sure to check out all of the other fascinating people that we've already interviewed. We're also open to your suggestions. If you know someone that we should be talking to, drop us a line at we'reinpodcast at synac.com. That's we'reinpodcast at synac.com.